Father, once again, we sense our need of you. That you would, by your Spirit, tonight, open your word up to us and cause us to see our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, in all of his joy. And we ask that you would work within us to conform us to his image. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been thinking about the emotions of Christ. And we've looked at his compassion. Last week we looked at his anger. And today, maybe we breathe a sigh of relief and look at his joy. Although I found that studying Jesus' joy to be somewhat more difficult than even his anger. Because joy is such a multifaceted quality or emotion. There's so much about joy in the Bible. We're focusing on the joy of Christ. And I realize there's so many aspects of joy I'd love to get into, but we won't be able to. So I'm just recognizing that up front. So let's begin by thinking about joy. Just thinking a little bit about what joy is before we dive into looking at Christ. First, joy is an emotion. So I would say that first. Joy is an emotion, or you could say it is a feeling. That is, it is something that is experiential. If you look up the word in a dictionary, you'll find some kind of definition like a feeling of great happiness, which isn't all that helpful. Um, but we could pile up synonyms for joy. Uh, synonyms for joy like enjoyment, bliss, elation, thrill, gladness, wonder, exultation. And there's a sense in which all of us know what it means to have joy. We've experienced that. And so we intuitively understand that word. The New Testament uses several words for joy. We'll be looking at a couple of them tonight. And although they might describe different degrees of joy, they all basically communicate what we mean by the word joy. J-O-Y. An experience of gladness. So joy is an emotion, but secondly, joy has degrees. Now, realize I don't have my PowerPoint, and I'm sorry if you're thrown off without the PowerPoint, but I will try to stick to this outline here. And uh, we're just going simple tonight, okay? But joy has degrees. That is, joy has levels of expression. It can be experienced in different ways. And I think this is one of the reasons why joy is so difficult to peg down. Because it can be used to both to describe both an outburst of emotion or a settled emotional state. Joy can be very quiet. Joy can be very loud. Joy can be very calm. Or it can express itself in agitated excitement or even tears, tears of joy. And so there's a complexity to joy. Joy's expression is not constant, but there's a, a spectrum to our experience of joy. It can vary from a deep inner sense of well-being it is well with my soul to exuberant and loud praise to God to being, as Peter writes, joy inexpressible and full of glory. That is this sense of awe where we are dumbfounded with joy, silenced almost by joy. 
So joy is an emotion. Joy has different degrees, different expressions and experiences. But joy is also a byproduct of something else. And everybody seems to get this idea that it is a byproduct. Happiness for many, especially here in the United States, but I think across the world, globally, is a goal to be pursued. Who doesn't want to be happy, right? Our country is actually founded on the the belief that the pursuit of happiness is an unalienable right, something that we can pursue. But how do we pursue happiness or joy? Well, we all understand that if we're going to pursue happiness, we have to pursue it via means, right? And this is where the advertisement industry gets a great boost, you know. This car will make you happy. This Coca-Cola will give you pure joy. This trip to Hawaii will bring you delight. You know, whatever it is, this advertisement. But we understand that in order to experience joy, we pursue joy through means, through experiences, through relationships, through possessions. We tend to think of joy as a byproduct. My children give me joy. Fishing gives me joy. Whatever it is that brings you joy. But something is related to joy. And when you come to the Bible, we find something very much the same. Biblical joy is a byproduct of something else. In fact, we read that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. That it is an emotion that is produced within us by the working of God's Spirit. It is not something we produce directly, but rather the byproduct, as it were, of the Spirit's work within us. Now it is true that Scripture commands us to rejoice in the Lord. Do it. Rejoice. It's a command. But note that even here it is understood to be the fruit of an understanding of who the Lord is. It's not just pursue joy for the sake of joy, but it is a joy in something. Does it make sense? In God. In who He is. And so we are to rejoice. We are to focus our attention upon the Lord to the point where we derive good cheer, soul-strengthening joy from who He is. And sometimes, and I will admit this, we need to cry out to God for even the capacity to rejoice in Him. Must we not? And so, joy is an emotion. Joy has levels or degrees. Joy is a byproduct. And I might even add another one here. This, I was just thinking about it. Joy is something that is fairly complex. That is, it is something that can exist side by side. It is an emotion that can exist side by side uh, alongside other emotions. It is an emotion. Joy, you can experience joy in the midst of grief. So there's, a, there's a complexity to it. So that Paul even describes himself as sorrowful, yet what? Always rejoicing. And so I'll just acknowledge, that's an area that I would have loved to have gone deeper into, but we're not going to be able to touch that as much tonight. So with that framework and those preliminaries, I want us to think about the Lord's joy. Now, while it is true that Jesus was a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. We are des- he's described that way in the book of Isaiah. 
I believe we would have a wrong picture of Christ if we imagine him to have walked around with a perpetual frown. I can't even do it. You know, I'm smiling. Or a constant sense of grief. It rather appears to me that there is much in the word of God to indicate that Jesus was a very joyful man. He enjoyed friendships. He enjoyed food. He enjoyed work. He enjoyed rest. In the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 45, the sons of Korah, Korah prophesy of the Messiah and they say, You have loved righteousness and you have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of what? Gladness. How much oil of gladness? Beyond your companions. In other words, we're being told here that Jesus had more joy than we've ever experienced. We're told in Isaiah that the Messiah would delight in the fear of the Lord and that his mission would be to bring glad tidings, good news to the afflicted, granting the people the oil of gladness instead of mourning. That was his mission. That's what he, he came to do, is to, to bring joy, to bring happiness. What a joyous mission. As you come to his birth, joy surrounds his birth. Yes, some grief, but lots of joy. So John leaps within the womb of Elizabeth when Mary, with Jesus in her womb, draws near. Mary praises God, saying, My spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. And when Jesus is born, the angels come to the shepherds and declare, I bring you good news of great joy. And the Magi, when they see the star coming down over the place where Jesus was, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Lots of joy. When you turn to John chapter 2, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read of Jesus turning water into wine. That's incredible. He does it at a wedding feast, a time of joy and celebration. And so far from saying, hey, let's not have too much joy around here, far from Jesus opposing their joy, he makes it possible for it to continue longer, for their gladness to continue. After calling Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him, Jesus is found in Matthew's home feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And what we find out is that it happened to be a day of prayer and fasting for the religious elite. And so here, here he is feasting on a fast day. And so they come to him and say, why, you know, why are your disciples, I guess maybe they didn't have the courage to say, why aren't you? Why are your disciples not fasting? And Jesus says, hey, the, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, my presence is a joyous presence, like that of a groom with his groomsmen. It's a time of feasting, not fasting, a time of celebration. You move on, Jesus later describes himself as having come eating and drinking to such an extent that people thought of him as a gluttonous man and a wine and a drunkard. He enjoyed food, fellowship, fun. <laughs> well, maybe not fun. Yeah, maybe fun. John four thirty one. 
after his encounter with the woman at the well, he tells his disciples, they're coming back with food and trying to get him to eat, he says, I have food of my own. My food is to do the will of my Father. I have something that nourishes me. I have something that brings fulfillment to me. And that is the doing of the will of God. You see, he knew the joy of obedience. And the joy of the Lord was his strength. In Luke 15, Jesus depicts the joy that exists in heaven when God, uh, in, in heaven, in God, when a sinner repents. He says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The appropriate response to repentance is celebration. Kill the fatted calf. Let's rejoice. Someone has come home. He was lost, but he's found. He was dead, but he's alive. And even as we approach, even as Jesus approached the agony of the cross, and he's with his disciples in the upper room, his desire is to share his joy with them. I want you to know my joy. And in the book of Hebrews, we are told that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So as B.B. Warfield writes, if our Lord was the man of sorrows, and he was, we're going to look at that in the future, he was more profoundly still the man of joy. And so we're going to look tonight at two main passages. I'm going to keep it a little bit more focused tonight. And the first passage is Luke chapter 10. So if you turn to Luke chapter 10, Part of the reason we're more focused tonight, because apart from all the implicit examples of Jesus' joy, there are not too many explicit examples of Jesus' joy. In fact, Jesus' joy, or Jesus' experience of joy, is really only mentioned once in all of the Gospels. And it is right here in Luke chapter 10. Now, Jesus mentions his joy in John 15, and we'll be going there shortly. But only here are we told, is he described as having exuberant joy? And so we want to think about that together. I'm going to read chapter 10, verse 1. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. So he's sending out 70 of his disciples onto this mission, all into the surrounding villages and and cities to minister. Now we pick up in verse 17. And here they're coming back. Verse 17, the 70 returned, note, with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see these things, the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Now what's fascinating about this account is you have to remember Luke is not an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. Luke did not know the human Jesus. The earthly, the, the, the Jesus who walked this earth. And so, he is writing, and he tells us at the beginning of his book, that he writes these stories that have been derived from interaction with eyewitnesses. That is, he's done research. What's fascinating about this story, though, is that it's not in any of the other Gospels. And so, he had to have heard this story from somebody, right, to have recorded it. Somebody reliable enough to have included it in his account. Now, maybe we're speculating here a little bit, but perhaps it was maybe even one of the 70. Perhaps Luke had gotten this person's phone number and address and name. And say, you, you know, you do, you're, you're writing a gospel, you're writing about Jesus, you need to go talk to so-and-so. He, he was with Jesus. He was sent out by Jesus on this mission. You've got to go talk to him about his experience. And maybe John goes and knocks on the door and it's open and, and he walks in and, and, you know, I'm Luke. I'm writing a gospel about Jesus. And, and, and here, you know, I want you to tell me about what you experienced when you were sent on this mission. Now, of course, I'm, I'm making this up. But the point is this, someone was there. Someone witnessed this. Someone heard Jesus' words. Someone saw, excuse me, someone witnessed these emotions displayed in Jesus and heard these words and communicated the story to Luke. Someone saw joy in Jesus and recognized it as joy. So it had to have been obvious in his demeanor, in his countenance, in his face. Fascinating. All right. But let's look at the story. Chapter 10. Look at verse 17. Here the the 70 are coming back and they are elated. They were in Alta heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. And when they've come back and they're full of joy and they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And they're just pumped. They're just so enthusiastic because they've seen God work miracles in powerful ways. And their mission has been a great success and they're celebrating. And this is where we see our first insight into what gives, what, G, what gives Jesus joy. He sees in the 70 disciples something misdirected about their joy. They're happy, but they're happy for the wrong reasons. And so he gently corrects them. But it's very gentle. He doesn't want to dampen their enthusiasm. And so he, do, he doesn't want to make them feel like 
They've done something entirely wrong by casting demons out. And so first he begins to just acknowledge the reality of what has occurred. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you, I have given authority over all serpents and all the powers of the evil one. In other words, Jesus, as Hendrickson writes, Jesus took delight in the joy of the 70. However, he did more than that. He purified their joy. He corrects it. He sees something wrong in it. Their joy seems to be based too much on their own accomplishments, on what they have done. Although they did it in his name, but it's we, you know, the subjects are, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he wants to redirect their joy. And so what does he say? He says, nevertheless, verse 20, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, be careful what you rejoice in. Don't rejoice in your actions. Rejoice in God's actions in your behalf. The joy of our salvation should supersede the joy of ministry victories. The scroll of life here that Jesus talks about is mentioned both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, John all speak of this book, this book in which names are recorded. And whether it is a literal or metaphorical book, it speaks of a register of God's people, a book with the list of names of the people who belong to God. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, Rejoice in the grace of God towards you. Rejoice. Note, note, note that the rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Note the passive there. You don't write your name there. I don't write my name there. Our names are written in that book by an act of God's grace. Rejoice in what you've received by grace. Don't, don't rejoice in who's under you. Rejoice in who is over you, who is above you. And this is where we turn to verse 21. And we read here that at this very time he rejoiced greatly. Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting here is that Luke uses a different word for Jesus' joy than he used for the disciples' joy. It's actually a much stronger word. And here Luke is subtly communicating that Jesus' joy far exceeded the disciples' joy. This is They, they were joyful but he's exceedingly joyful. They were glad, but he's exuberant. He's overjoyed in the Holy Spirit. He's just instructed his disciples to rejoice in their salvation, in their names being recorded in heaven. But what does Jesus rejoice in? What causes him to be overjoyed? Well, in one sense, at a very surface level, he's rejoicing in the fulfillment of his mission. He's rejoicing in the fact that people are hearing the gospel. People are being, their their needs are being ministered to and being met. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve. He came to preach the gospel. He came to shepherd people. And he's seen this vision coming to, he's seen his mission coming to pass. He's seen others pick up the vision and carry it forward through the 70. And he's encouraged and he's thrilled. 
This is a day of salvation, and joy is an appropriate emotion. But Jesus' joy goes a little deeper, and you see that in what he says here in verse 21. Jesus is not just rejoicing in seeing the work being accomplished, but his joy goes even deeper. Jesus delights in his Father's good pleasure, in what his Father delights to do. You see what he says here. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, know what it says, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. In other words, Jesus is, is, is rejoicing in the joy of his Father. He's rejoicing in the will of his Father. He's rejoicing that in his Father's sovereign and wise will, he has chosen to hide these truths of the kingdom from the proud, from those who are wise in their own estimation, and to reveal it to those who are humble, who have no confidence in themselves. Jesus is delighting in what his Father delights in. See, we, we usually are happy when everything goes our way. Jesus gets happy when everything goes his Father's way. And he rejoices. But Jesus' joy, if you'll note, goes even deeper still. He not only rejoices in seeing his Father's will come to pass, but he rejoices in the relationship that he has with his Father. Look at what he says in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That is, the Father implicitly trusts the Son. He hands all things over to His Son. There is an absolute trust there in the relationship between the Father and Son. Absolute knowledge. The Father knows the Son entirely. The Son knows the Father entirely. And there is a perfect relationship there. A relationship of complete knowledge and absolute trust. Now, note what it says in these two verses. It's quite fascinating. In verse 21, who reveals the things of God? The Father. But in verse 22, who reveals the Father? The Son. See, they're in absolute unity. And after they're together. And in their perfect union and relationship, they sovereignly and graciously invite human beings into their fellowship. Wow. And then he turns to his disciples and said, you know, a lot of people wish they could be here to see what your eyes see. Kings and prophets wish they could have seen this. King David, who wrote about me. The prophet Isaiah, who wrote about me. Don't you believe that as they were writing, they wished they could have seen what they were writing about? And yet your eyes have seen it. And so in summary, as we summarize Luke chapter 10, I just want to make a few points here. Jesus' joy is a relational joy. That's very important. It's the joy of sonship. He delights in his Father. He delights in his Father's ways. 
He delights in his closeness and intimacy with his Father. And so it is a relational joy, but it is also the joy, Jesus' joy is the joy of seeing his Father's will come to pass. Men and women entering into the kingdom of God, their names being recorded in heaven, that which has been hidden being revealed to them. And that is joy to Jesus. Okay, that's Luke 10. The only other place in the Gospels where there's a clear, in, where, where Jesus speaks, where, there, where, it's, where, where, where we read about Jesus' joy is in John chapter 15. So if you turn there to John 15, and we want to think about that before we draw some conclusions. John 15, and we're going to read just a few verses here, verses 9 through 11. How are we doing? Hanging in there? All right, John 15, 9 through 11. Just as the Father has loved me, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples prior to his death, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, not only did Jesus experience great joy, he wanted his joy to also be experienced by his disciples. He wants to share his joy. He wants them to experience not another kind of joy, but the very joy he experiences. Remember again, this is the night that he will be betrayed. He is being crucified the next morning, and yet he speaks of joy, his joy. It's incredible. Again, note that Jesus' joy is the joy of sonship. At the root of Christ's joy is a relationship with his Father. And that is critical to understand. The nature, note the nature of that relationship. It is an abiding in his Father's love. That is, it is an experience of the Father's love. Now here we have to be very, very clear. There's a big difference between being loved on the one hand and enjoying that love on the other hand. That is, you can be loved and not be aware of being loved. Do you realize that? Those are two separate things. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, we get the great objective fact of God's permanent love for His Son and Christ's permanent love for His people. Just as the Father has, note the past tense there, has loved me as a standing fact. He's loved me. So also, I have also loved you. The great abiding truth. 
Jesus loves His people with an everlasting love. Then look at verse 10. Verse 10, the focus changes from the objective love of Christ for His people to our subjective enjoyment and experience of His love. And in particular here, the focus is on the condition for remaining in Christ's love. What is the condition? He says it right here. If you keep My commandments. What is the condition for remaining in the love of Christ? Obedience. Obedience. I want to be really clear about this. God loves all His people. No question. But all His people do not live in a conscious awareness of His love. That's something else entirely. And we're trying to get an understanding of Christ's joy. And this is so important to grasp here. What is it that gladdens the heart of Christ. Do you know what it is? It is having the smile of His Father upon His life. It's living in the conscious sense of His Father's pleasure. His Father's love. Do you realize Jesus never deviated from the will of His Father? Not one iota. Not once. He says, I always do the things that please my Father. And in obeying His Father, in doing His Father's will, Jesus lived in, He remained in, He experienced, He enjoyed His Father's pleasure, His Father's love. You see, Jesus' joy was a response to His Father's joy in Him. We see a beautiful picture of this when Jesus, in obedience to His Father, goes down to the Jordan River and is baptized by John the Baptist in order to fulfill all righteousness. In order, It was an act of obedience to the will of His Father. And then the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what do you think Jesus felt in that moment as He hears those words of of encouragement, those, those words of His Father's good pleasure, those words of affirmation from His Father. Was it not joy? Was it not joy that thrilled His heart? I remember as a kid wanting to please my father, my earthly father. Sometimes doing things I knew He'd be happy with. Why? Because I knew that when he'd come home from work, he would smile upon me. And I knew instinctively that for him to smile upon me was for me to experience a deep kind of joy. The joy that is derived from an awareness of being loved by another being. Jesus' joy is the fruit of his abiding in his Father's love by means of obedience. Jesus' love is the fruit of His abiding in His Father's love by means of obedience. It's what what the text is telling us here. 
Jesus' joy, we could say, is the joy of obedience. The joy of being secure in a conscious awareness of His Father's love. An awareness that He had had from all eternity. Isn't that incredible? The Father has loved the Son from all eternity. He is God's beloved Son. And this is what makes Jesus Jesus' experience on the cross even more profound. Because there on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And there on the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And there for our sakes, Jesus experienced, and we have to be really careful here, because we can get into trouble. But it seems that a rupture took place in this eternal love relationship with his Father. And why? For our sakes, for your sake, for my sake, that we might enter into his joy. His joy. So, what are some of the lessons that we can draw? from Jesus' joy, his experience of joy. Number one, I'm just going to make this point. Jesus experienced more joy on earth than any other human being. Uh, My point here is Jesus was a joyous person, full of joy. He was a man of joy. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Uh, Jesus, I believe, enjoyed many things. We have every evidence that he enjoyed good food, (laughs) celebrations, Deep friendships, the wonder of God's creation. He enjoyed the sunsets. He enjoyed that weird bug that was walking along. You know, he enjoyed these things, took pleasure in them. But I hope you see from the study that his joy had a deeper source still, a source that transcends earthly circumstances, earthly pleasures a joy that is ultimately rooted in his relationship with his Father. See, Jesus' joy is based on the abiding sense of his Father's love. His Father's love. And I want to say this, Jesus never lost his joy. Now apart from the cross, and I'm going to leave that, there's a mystery there. And depending on how you understand that, he never lost his joy. He was never without joy. I'm not saying that Jesus' experience, that his experience of joy and his expression of joy never varied. Clearly it varied. We are told in Luke that he rejoiced greatly, which implies that he didn't always rejoice greatly in that way, right? So his experience and expression of joy varied. But he always had a deep, abiding sense of joy. And even in the midst of all the other emotions that at time arose within him, emotions of anger at times, grief at times, astonishment, yet underneath it all was an abiding sense of joy. Why? Because he never ceased to abide in his Father's love. Never ceased. He always did the will of his Father. He delighted in the will of his Father. And he faithfully obeyed. He was always conscious of his Father's smile upon him. 
Now, you might note this down. What does this joy cause Jesus to do? In the passages that we looked at, Jesus' experience of joy caused him to do two things. One, it caused him to praise his Father. Jesus' joy caused him to erupt in praise to God his Father, to vocalize it, to vocalize it out loud even, publicly, because others heard it and it was recorded. But secondly, Jesus' joy caused him to want to share it with others. So one, to praise God. Secondly, it caused him to want to share it with others. There's something about joy, and I know you've experienced this, I've experienced There's something about joy that causes us to want to share it with another person. Joy is relational. And Jesus wants to share his joy with us. And that really leads us to this second point that we want to make as we end our time tonight. Let's seek to abide in Christ's love so that we might experience his joy. This is Christ's desire for us. Where where is our joy to be found? Well, like Jesus, we can enjoy many things. We can enjoy food, we can enjoy good company, uh, we're, not, we're not saying we can't enjoy all these earthly goods, these blessings that God has blessed us with. But our joy must go deeper than that. Our joy must be in Jesus Christ. We are told to rejoice in the Lord always. And as Jesus tells the 70, we need to rejoice that our names are written in heaven, right? We need to rejoice in joy in the God of our salvation and in, a, in our great salvation that has been won for us. But I want us to focus here a little bit onto John 15. I think that's what the Lord has for us tonight. Jesus desires that we experience the joy of abiding in the conscious awareness of Christ's love and enter into that joy by way of participation. That's fascinating to me. You see, he wants us to experience what he experiences. He wants us to walk the path of obedience as he walks the path of obedience. He wants us to enter in to his joy, the joy that he feels, the joy that he experiences. Where are you going to experience Christ's joy? It's a good question. Where, where are you? Where am I? Where are we going to experience Christ's joy? We are going to experience Christ's joy in the path of his will and nowhere else. We're going to experience it in the path of doing what he says and nowhere else. We will experience joy when we give ourselves to obey Jesus' commands. What are his commands? Go read the Gospels. What's the very next command he gives his disciples in John 15? Love one another. Love one another. What are some of his commands? Make disciples of all nations. 
Seek first his kingdom. Don't worry about your life. Don't practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. Don't judge. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Don't store up your, for yourself treasures on earth. And we could, we could create a list, right, of the commands that Jesus has left us. And Jesus is saying, obey those commands. Walk in obedience and experience my smile, my love. As we conform our lives to his will, as we walk in obedience, we will experience, we will abide in his love and we will know his joy. You see, joy doesn't come from self-expression. What we're told in our culture, express yourself, find fulfillment. Joy doesn't come from self-expression, doesn't come from amassing wealth and possessions. Joy doesn't come from personal achievement. Joy comes from submission. Joy comes from glad surrender to the will of God. And one day we're going to stand before our Lord. And those who belong to Jesus Christ will hear these wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's quite profound. And note again the relationship in these words between faithful obedience and entering into Christ's joy. You see the relationship there? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And what Jesus is sharing with his disciples and what he's sharing with us tonight is that you don't have to wait until you die to enter into the joy of your master. You can experience that right now. We can enter into his joy right now. He wants us to experience this as a present and ongoing reality. The joy of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Teach us more and more what it means to abide in your love. Impart to us your joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.